This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Okay, um, I'll get I'll get us started. Uh, thanks everyone for uh, for showing up. Thanks a lot to our our panelists uh, for 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 agreeing to do this. Just to, as a few words of background, my name is Suresh Naidu, the co-organizer of Economists for Inclusive Prosperity, which is a project Gabriel Zuckman and Danny Roderick and I started kind of trying to uh, uh, explore what economics looks like after neoliberalism and what kind of a, a, a more inclusive, more, uh, more egalitarian kind of economics looks like. And uh, this is kind of our, our attempt to sort of help economics grapple with the, its current moment by acknowledging that economics doesn't necessarily already have all the answers and doesn't already have the necessary um, conceptual toolkit. So we, uh, I, so uh, there's lots to say about this and uh, lots of people here that have thought about it more than me. Um, and uh, so just to, uh, so I'm just gonna hand it off to, to someone who's thought about it a lot, uh, 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 Sandy Darity, who's gonna be moderating um, uh, the, the panel. So take it away, Sandy. Thank you. And thank you to, to you, Suresh, and to Danny for organizing this event. I think uh, it's very, very important for us as economists to learn from the other disciplines. Uh, we've had an imperializing tendency towards the other disciplines. And in the process, I think we have failed to really recognize many of the important contributions that have been delivered from other disciplines using their perspective rather than the perspective that we normally bring to these issues. Uh, in particular, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that uh, an important tool that I've used in much of my research, the Blinder Oaxaca decomposition, really I believe was preceded by the Blau and Duncan decomposition in sociology, but I think frequently uh, we have not been aware of that. Um, and similarly, when we talk about unobserved heterogeneity, it sometimes becomes a blockade for really understanding the phenomenon of, uh, of discrimination. Or when we talk about the identification problem, it constitutes a blockade to thinking about some factors as being fundamental causes of phenomena rather than interactive causes of phenomena. Uh, so as a consequence, I think it's really going to be valuable for us to hear from the scholars who are going to join us today. We have four speakers. Uh, after they make their respective presentations, we will take questions from the floor, so to speak, and have an opportunity for the speakers to respond to those questions as well as uh, engage with one another. And our first speaker is going to be Dinah Ramey Berry who is the Oliver H. Radley Regents Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin. Her, support, her superb book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, recovers the humanity of persons, black persons specifically, who, whose lives were comprehensively commodified. Uh, there are two additional dimensions of her book that I think merit deep attention. First, the extended commodification of black bodies after life ends into death. And second, the significance of the effects of markets, markets in human beings on US economic development. Her most recent book is A Black Women's History of the United States, uh, co-authored with Callie Nicole Gross. And uh, I'm hopeful, time permitting, that she'll have an opportunity to tell us what we can learn from that book also. Our second speaker is Arjuman Siddiqui, who is an epidemiologist at the Dalai Lama School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. She is also the Canada Research Chair in Population Health Equity. She has had brilliant insights about differences in social and policy structures across countries and how they affect not only health outcomes for the general population, but also the health disparities between 
ethnic and racial groups within those populations. She also has uh, recently published a critique of Kaysen Deaton's perspective on deaths of despair. And in the interest of full disclosure, I'm actually a co-author on that article. Uh, but she has a, a, a strong commitment to understanding the full play of what public health scholars refer to as the social determinants of health in contrast with genetic or behavioral or cultural factors. Uh, our third speaker is going to be Mario Luis Small, who is, um, who is a deeply accomplished sociologist, urban sociologist at the interface between thinking about neighborhoods and communities as well as social networks. He is the Grafstein Family Professor of Sociology at Harvard. And one of the things that's particularly impressive about his, uh, about his research productivity is that two of his books, uh, Villa Victoria and Unanticipated Gains, both have received the C. Wright Mills Award. Uh, I think recently in some of his work, he's been most notably engaged in a new nuanced reintroduction of cultural considerations in the analysis of race and sociology. And then our final speaker is Eduardo Bonilla-Silva, one of my colleagues at Duke, also a deeply accomplished sociology. Uh, remarkably, he has recently served as president of the American Sociological Society, uh, the American Sociological Association and the Southern Sociological Society simultaneously. I, I think that's unprecedented. Uh, he is the author of Racism Without Racist, among a number of books, but I, I want to mention Racism Without Racist because it's now in its fourth edition, and it explores the difference between people's attitudes about race that's expressed in short answer surveys versus in-depth interviews. And what he demonstrates in that book is that if you rely upon short answer surveys to try to gauge variations in people's attitudes on questions concerning race, you're going to miss the boat because they self-censor increasingly. And so what you really want to do is engage them in long-term interviews. And uh, in, that, in that environment, you get much better information about what their beliefs really are. So may we start? Uh, Dinah Barrett, please. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to start off my remarks, brief, my brief remarks, and just talk a little bit about what the work looks like from an historian's perspective. And as Dr. Darity said, my research is on uh, enslaved people. And I was an economic major, economics major during undergrad. I don't know if, if Dr. Darity knew that, but um, I, I was majored in eco economics until my last year in undergrad, and I took an African-American history class and decided that's what I wanted to change and do my work on. Um, but I've always wanted to try to find a way to blend the, the work that I had done as an undergrad in, in, in economics. So when I started doing this work on the price for the pound of flesh, I, my goal, maybe it was naive, but my goal was to allow the economists that are doing work on slavery, very, very good work on slavery, to have a, a more cohesive conversation with historians. And one of the things that I was trying to do initially is I was trying to walk in the space that I thought economists do, and I was trying to find out whether or not I could show statistical significance in my findings. And as I was doing that and trying to search for that in the ways I was looking at how enslaved people are priced from the beginning, before they're even conceived, so enslaved mothers were looked at for the fecundity to see what their value of their, their future laborers would cost, um, to see whether or not if they had given birth to children, would, did those children survive to age five? Were they healthy? And if so, that particular woman received a higher valuation um, during pregnancy than other women. Um, and so I was doing research on that and trying to look at ways to, to bridge this gap between the two fields and to make sure that my argument would um, be palatable in both spaces. And what I learned in the process was that enslaved people spoke very loudly to me when I was looking at these records. And I was using data sets that uh, Stanley Angerman and um, Robert Fogel created. I'd also created my own data set. Um, I'd been doing research in Southern archives for about you know, seven or eight years and had this large data set of about 80,000 individuals enslaved people's values, um, their prices, um, their monetary values, and their appraised values. 
But I realized as I was doing this work that enslaved people themselves had so much more to say about valuation and their own, the values on their bodies. And that was really interesting to me. And I thought, okay, well, if I write this book that talks about it from the perspective of enslaved people participating in, the, in their, their um, thoughts about the value of their bodies, how will that change the way we talk about this in both economic and historical circles? So I don't know how it's fully been received um, in economic circles. I have a very good uh, economic historian friend who said to me, that is not the book I would have wrote um, when I finished it, because there's a lot of testimony. There's a lot of stories of enslaved people saying, oh, I'm not worth 40. I'm not worth $500. I'm worth $200. Or I'm not 40 years old. I'm 20 years old. So this is, a, this is an economic product that's put in a market space that has the ability to argue, to emote, to reject, to resist. And that is a very, very different quote unquote product. And one of the things that I found, it's a human product, right? And when I was doing the research for the book, I saw that the work that I've used from a number of economic historians did not acknowledge at all the humanity of enslaved people. And I thought, even if you're not writing about them as human beings, you're, but you're putting them in formulas and they now become a person named John, now becomes an X with an exponential power and there's a formula to figure out how much that particular woman is worth or that particular man is worth. It doesn't take much, and I think you'll have more historians uh, engaging this work, if you acknowledge that this was a family and this person lived on this particular plantation and they were worth this much and this is what they felt about their valuation or how they responded to that particular moment of sale. And that was really what the book, the purpose of the book for me. But what I found later, and I think Dr. Darity mentioned this, was that the, the valuation of enslaved bodies went beyond um, preconception, but also to the postmortem space. And that there was an illegal trade in uh, cadavers of enslaved people and whites and, and free blacks, but I was mostly interested in the enslaved cadavers, um, that were, their bodies were sold to medical schools. And so they still made money off of their bodies after they had passed away. Um, some of them were, the values were much lower, anywhere from five to $30. So the market rate wasn't as much. They, they're valued more when they're living because they're producing more, right? They're producing more and bringing more um, financial resources to the families that they're enslaved by. But in the, in the afterworld, okay, if I'm going to dispose of this body. If I can make some money off of the disposal, I'll make $30 and that's it. Um, there were some cases where enslaved people were valued um, at the moment right before they were hung. And then the, 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 the surviving relatives of the planter family or the enslavers would receive compensation for the valuation of that enslaved person. So there's a lot of spaces where we talk about, about slavery and enslaved people, and we talk about them in monetary ways, but the humanity is often missing and they're objectified. They're treated like a backpack or a book on a shelf. And I just feel like if economists and historians can come together and have conversations about I, the deep meanings that you guys find when you create formulas, you can take us to places that we can't go, but we can also bring you to records that might inform what you're seeing and, and how you analyze this work um, and make it for a much deeper conversation. So I will, I will, I will leave it at that. Um, I, I don't know if I've done my five minutes. I'm trying to say if I have a little more time, I could say a few more things. I'm good. All right. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the, the conversation. Thank you. Uh, Arjuan, you're on mute. Okay, you're off now. <laughs> Great, thanks. Thanks, everyone. Um, I feel like I should put out a disclaimer that says some of my best friends are economists uh, before I start my uh, talk. Um, so as Sandy mentioned, I'm a social epidemiologist, and our discipline is really quite related to medicine and to um, the study of, of uh, distributions of disease from a sort of clinical perspective. And so as social epidemiology kind of evolved, we were starting to find our empirical legs around how to use population surveys and different kinds of data than the clinical data our discipline tends to use, how to use different statistical methods. Um, and in the early 2000s, when I was doing my PhD, uh, I remember sort of looking enviously from Boston over to Cambridge at the economics department because it was considered so rigorous of all the disciplines related to um, our field. Um, and then I had this moment of, of pretty big dissonance when in the mid-2000s, I encountered uh, a paper by three economists 
whose main argument was that black-white differences in hypertension could be attributed to genetic selection for genes associated with salt retention. And the narrative was that this genetic selection occurred during this transatlantic slave trade because of the survival advantage conferred by salt retention, and that it occurred during cheek licking tests for salty skin done by slave traders to further determine uh, what blacks would be able to withstand the demands of plantation work. Um, and this economist team also suggested that this salt retention hypothesis was really the best way to explain the black-white life expectancy gap as well. Uh, it's been a lot of years and I actually had trouble finding the paper online now, but I just remember thinking that the evolutionary geneticists just probably were, you know, passing out at the notion that, uh, you know, genetic selection would occur at that pace. Uh, something that occurs over thousands of years was essentially being proposed to happen over one or 200. Uh, the human genome scientists who had carefully explained to us by then that race was not a genetic construct, there was no genetic basis um, for race, and just thinking to myself, surely there is a geneticist amongst the authors, or surely some of the genetics work on race has been cited and uh, it hadn't. And um, it was just really difficult to understand how a hypothesis that had no premise could receive so much uh, traction. The paper also was a little bit alarming because it hadn't cited any of the work from social epidemiology on racial inequalities in hypertension. And I'm not just sort of uh, suggesting that my field is the field that should be cited, but we really are the central field on racial health inequalities. And there is people who have specialized, you know, their whole careers on racial disparities and hypertension. None of them uh, were cited. Um, and if they had been, um, you might find a very different story about black-white differences in hypertension and in life expectancy. So the body of literature in our field that's been built up is both based on what we know race is not, as well as what we know race is. Um, and the idea is that we've built up sort of a conceptual and theoretical basis, but also a lot of empirical tests of the propositions that have been made. Um, and what, what the field has found is that racial inequalities in health uh, manifest through processes of structural or institutional racism, as well as what is often called everyday discrimination. So Black people are systematically denied access to material resources and are subject, subjected to chronically stressful experiences of daily life. And those things together put them at a higher risk of a wide range of illnesses and death. Um, so social epidemiologists would and have told a very different story about black weight inequalities and hypertension and uh, life expectancy. Um, lately, my colleagues and I have been working on the noted rise in white mortality in the US, what's been called the deaths of despair phenomenon, the paper that Sandy mentioned earlier. There are a lot of teams working on this, including economist Anne Case and Angus Deaton. Uh, and you'd better believe we take their, their work very seriously. We have carefully looked at their hypotheses. We have carefully cited them um, and so on. And in some ways, I think I live in, in fear of making facile arguments uh, simply because I've been both careless or, or dismissive of work from other disciplines. Um, and I'm increasingly of the mind uh, that maybe this fear is a good way to approach uh, scientific inquiry. And I'm increasingly weary uh, when I read work that, that, you know, sort of doesn't cite anyone else outside their own discipline, especially when it's topics that are not central to their discipline and their expertise. So uh, back to that deaths of despair work. Uh, so in that piece, we proposed that status threat, group status threat, the sense from whites that they are losing relative status compared to black and brown people is accounting for the rise in white mortality. And we use uh, in this paper, both theoretical and empirical findings from social psychology and from political science to suggest that at the population level, we can actually measure or proxy status threat by measuring the rise in the uh, vote share going to Republicans in any given county. 
Um, so our model essentially tested whether rise in Republican vote share at the county level as a proxy of status threat um, could predict the rise in white mortality, accounting for about 17 social and economic indicators, fixed effects, and so on, um, that might also uh, uh, be involved in the processes. So we received quite a bit of pushback um, on this paper in two ways. And the first was that it was just a bridge too far to equate uh, Republican vote share uh, with status threat. And the other was that because uh, of our statistical model, again, 18 variables, county, time, et cetera, fixed effects, uh, because the model uh, did not account for unobserved confounding, that we couldn't interpret the association as being causal. So the fundamental problem I see with this argument is not that it suggests there might be an alternative explanation. I, I totally concur that there, there might be. But it's the idea that an unknown alternative explanation that no one is proposing, uh, it's just the idea that there might be an alternative explanation, is given equal weight to a model that tests basically everything we know about how the world works. And so I worry a lot that um, this notion of unobserved confounding is actually overtaking or being weighted equally with the preponderance of ev evidence that we have. And I, I'm not sure that that's a great way to go. You also see it, uh, Sandy mentioned, in models where um, there are residuals in accounting for race-based differences and the uh, implication given the preponderance of the evidence would be that these are discrimination effects and yet there's a reticence to think about that or at least to weight it equally with the idea that there's some unobserved uh, confounding there's this sort of unobserved uh, confounding boogeyman out there that uh, we I think um, live by too closely a final anecdote about uh, our field and I think what it says about economics so I had a graduate student who wanted to work on uh, racial differences in the distribution of, work weight, of birth weight. And in fact, she wanted to look at whether Canada and the U.S. have different inequalities in the distribution of, of birth weight. And the idea was that if we compare countries and their inequalities, we might start to point to some of the societal factors that are modifying inequalities, that are mitigating them or exacerbating them. And I spoke to an uh, economist colleague of mine, who's a lovely person, um, and he said, you know, I'm a little worried that we're not going to get very far in terms of a causal association if we pursue this uh, uh, line of questioning, that you'll really only be able to say associational things. Why don't we look at um, how prenatal care affects racial inequalities in birth weight? Which is a fine question. I, I'm not disparaging the role of prenatal care, but imagine the difference in the size of the question and the focus of the question between something that talks about how societies produce, fundamentally produce inequalities down to something that deals with a fairly circumscribed issue. And so my worry is that this chase after causal inference precludes us from looking at a lot of really important questions. I'm not suggesting we go down the road of looking at those questions and imply causality when it isn't there, but I do think that we can pursue those questions and say something about what the causal inference issues are and how to push ourselves, but not to completely uh, uh, ignore what I think are really, really important questions for society. Uh, and I'll leave it there. Thank you. Mario. Please. Thank you very much. This has been uh, very interesting so far. So I'll tell you that the, the main reason I'm here is probably because a couple of months ago, I published a paper along with Diva Pager in the Journal of Economic Perspectives titled uh, Sociological Perspectives on Race Discrimination. And the point of the paper was to make a case for six ideas in our field, uh, sociology, that uh, economists haven't but probably should uh, take uh, seriously. So what I'm going to do is uh, give you three of these ideas and um, open, and then after, of course, the last talk, just open it up. So everybody here knows better than I do uh, that uh, traditionally in economics, kind of the two standard models are the taste discrimination 
uh, and the statistical discrimination model when people study race discrimination. And I don't have to tell you what those models are. Uh, but one thing I will say is that um, from our perspective, the, uh, there are a couple of quite important problems with those models. And um, I guess you could sum them up uh, with the idea that um, a model or set of models that studies discrimination by focusing on the potentially uh, racially motivated actions of an actor making decisions today uh, will probably understate a lot of the ways discrimination actually happens and has consequences for even the things that economists care about. And uh, this is the case for at least three reasons. Um, the first, I'll say, is that it ignores uh, the possibility of institutional discrimination. And um, I'm going to use that term in a very narrow sense to refer to um, differential treatment by race that is either perpetrated by an organization or codified into law. And uh, I'm, I, I'm not using the term structural racism or institutional racism or a lot of stuff that, um, that other sociologists have used and a lot of people in the media have used because uh, I'm, there's sort of ambiguity in some of the usage of the terms and they don't always mean what we're meaning, what we're referring to, but just very narrowly the idea that differential treatment by race can be perpetrated by their organizations recorded into law. And so uh, to give you a very simple example, um, sort of take an organization in which uh, nobody, uh, uh, as Becker would say, nobody wants to pay a price uh, to not associate with people of a different race. So nobody has a taste for discrimination. And in addition, uh, nobody is willing to make statistical inferences about the behavior or likely performance of an employee uh, on the basis of the employee's group. So nobody statistically discriminates. Um, now, let's assume that that firm, as many do, hires uh, new employees on the basis of referrals, that they have an incentive system, for example, depending on the, on the level at which you're hired for entry-level employees, you'll get 100 bucks if you refer somebody and they get hired. Now, let's assume we also know, uh, sociologists have shown, that there's racial homophily. I think in economics, this is called assorted of mating by race and friendship formation, uh, but basically the idea that people tend to have friends of the same race. Now, uh, if this firm is racially homogeneous, what's going to happen is all of the people who come in applying for jobs are going to be other people of the same race because of the pattern in the world and because the strong incentives is made for people to be hired on the basis of the people you already have. In this model, no employer has to have a taste for discrimination or to discriminate, and yet a highly qualified person of a different race from outside the firm is going to have a very small chance of getting a job there. That's a form of discrimination that we believe deserves attention. The second point I'll make is um, that, again, the reason it's a bad idea to just focus or, yeah, it's just a bad idea to only, to limit the study of discrimination to only the actions of a contemporary actor is that a lot of forms of historical discrimination uh, particularly forms that have been codified into law or become institutional parts of how organizations operate, continue to have effects today. And therefore, even if today everybody stopped being discriminatory, either by race or statistically or whatever the case may be, we'd still have a lot of reason to study historic discrimination to understand the present. Um, I won't go too much into this other than to say that a very clear example of this is uh, redlining uh, that many of you are familiar with. There have happily been quite a few papers, including a couple by economists in recent years, showing that redlining prices, practices back in the 30s um, can be shown to have likely had a causal impact on long-term homeownership rates among African-Americans and segregation uh, detectable even today. And so there have been papers that, for example, have looked at um, uh, boundaries, uh, the boundary line for redlining and units on either side of it. They've looked at um, federal policies that had cutoffs for the size of the town and looked at towns slightly older, slightly bigger and smaller than that. Through multiple identification strategies, there's actually quite a bit of evidence that it matters. The last point I'll make um, is that, again, a different reason to not 
limit the study of discrimination to sort of statistical and uh, taste-based discrimination is that perception of discrimination matters um, a lot. And what I'll say uh, when I'm saying this is that I am not saying uh, that perception is an effective substitute for actual discrimination. Um, and I'm also not saying that we should not continue having a healthy skepticism for what people say over what they do. But what I am saying is that there are many contexts in which uh, the perception that an employer or a doctor or take your pick has or will or has had discriminated is gonna affect your behavior in ways that matter for, you know, where you apply for jobs, uh, how far you go in school, and how, uh, sort of how much, uh, what your health outcomes are that we cannot capture, again, by focusing on the employer or the banker as a prototypical racial or potentially racially motivated actor. So I'll just leave it at that. And I'll say, um, if you're interested in more of this, uh, I'll refer you to the JEP paper. But the bottom line is I appreciate, actually, I find quite interesting a lot of what economists have done in this. I think the issue is expanding beyond what's been done as opposed to uh, remaining tied to these two very traditional ways of looking at discrimination. Thank you. Okay, it's my turn. So, so economists begin with this notion of the free market, the invisible hand. And we need to be clear that the hand has a color. It's a white hand and it's a white male hand. I will not address the gender components of the market. I leave that to others. So I will only talk about uh, the racialized aspects of the market, yeah? And like Dana, I also was a double major in sociology and economics, and I was debating, I ended up choosing sociology, in part because of the, the foundation of, of, of economics, these assumptions about the rational actor making decisions on a cost-benefit basis, yeah, in a so-called efficient market. And we all know that the homo sapiens is a complex uh, animal shaped by multiple social forces and group divisions, yeah? So the, I do believe, and in that, my Marxism, my old Marxism remains with me. So economic factors account for a lot of what happens in life, but cannot explain everything because the, the material component of life, yeah, is cannot be defined in this narrow economic way that in which many of you sort of uh, structure your analysis, yeah? So the white homo economicus, for example, as we have learned, cares about access to parks, control of neighborhoods and schools, and uh, their culture, yeah? They are willing to fight tooth and nail to keep certain statues in, in place, yeah? They also fight to feel, in, they, they like to feel good about themselves because blacks, as Mara will argue a long time ago, have served as the symbolic index for whites. They can always say, at least I am not black. And that element of feeling good about yourself is important in life, yeah? So whites are so invested in whiteness that many are willing to die for it as uh, Jonathan Metzel outlined in his recent book. So this is the, the stuff of history. Yeah? Uh, we have modernity, and modernity was not just driven by capitalism, because capitalism, as Eric Williams, Cedric Robinson, and many others have argued, you cannot undo the connection between slavery, genocide, land theft, and the economic uh, mode of production. Yeah? In the case of the U.S., we had slavery, we had genocide, we had land theft, we had, and we still have colonialism as a Puerto Rican. I know that this person <laughs> doesn't represent my interest. And two days ago, we learned he was pondering about selling Puerto Rico. Yeah, and of course, workers of color have allowed capitalism or capitalists to extract super profits from us. So that means that the society structure and culture were racialized from the get-go. And I suggest not only produce systemic racism, but that system remains, yeah? So what is systemic racism? It used to be so easy, yeah? It's the bad guys. It's the neo-bad guys. It is the rotten apple theory of life, yeah? These people having a taste for discrimination. The trick is understanding that systemic racism ultimately cannot exist without the actions and inactions of the green apples. That is, most whites participate 
consciously or unconsciously, of the systemic racism uh, stuff. And lately, literally three, two months ago, everybody seems to be talking about systemic racism, but I think most folks talking about, about it don't know what, they, what they're talking about. So for example, they say police departments uh, uh, have systemic racism and immediately put the caveat, but most police officers are not racist, therefore reversing or reverting to the theory of, of life of the bad apples, yeah? In truth, the way that we select officers, the training, the culture, all these things shape the actions and beliefs of, of the officer, yeah? So even the good ones, and I put that in quotation marks, carry out race-based policing. I wanted to give you a lineal example. So this is a, a young African-American college student who was brutalized in Atlanta recently by six police officers. And as you can see, only one of the officers was white. So some of you may be thinking, but can black people enforce white supremacy? And since slavery, many of blacks have been selected to participate in the enforcement of, of uh, white supremacy. Yeah? And although historically, the main people in charge of enforcing boundaries happen to wear the white uniform and not only white police officers, but regular white folks. In truth, that's the way that the system works. And thankfully, because we humans, we, our subjectivity is shaped by multiple factors, there is always a space, a possibility for change. So what do we need is a historic, historically specific view of racism that allows to under, us to understand that this system share basic features, yeah? Whether we're in Panama, Puerto Rico, Haiti, or the US, all these systems share basic features, but we need to be specific about how is racism structured in a particular society. In a society, you can have regional variations. Think about the US, the South, North, West, and we need to be also time specific, yeah? Don't assume that there is one racism throughout history. Racism can change, yeah? The rules and regulations of the slavery regime were different than Jim Crow, and they are different from what we have today that I have called in my work the new racism, yeah? Secondly, the systemic racism forms a structure, yeah? Systemic collective practices, behaviors, and culture that reproduce disadvantage for some and advantages for others. And here comes the hardest part which is understanding that this system has a material foundation, yeah? It remains in place like capitalism and patriarchy because systemic racism, because folks benefit from it, yeah? Again, I already showed or suggested that there are fractures in the white communities or possibilities for change, but we need to understand the big implication, which is that racial domination depends on nice, good white people who participate in various ways and to different degrees in maintaining the racial order of things. Borrowing the work from Marx and Pulanzas, the whites are personifications of systemic racism. So they receive mostly in passive or neutral way what David Rodiger called the wages of whiteness. They follow the dominant racial script. So contemporary whites, they live in white neighborhoods. They have only white friends white schools, white ideas, white everything, yeah? They even eat white bread, that's a joke. And lastly, they, they keep talking along as if racism was the prerogative of the races, yeah? They even put signs in their yard saying, we believe black lives matter, but we live in a totally segregated neighborhood. So final words. If racism is systemic, then, it, as Mario was articulating, it cannot be just a taste or a matter of statistical discrimination. It's not an individual phenomenon, but a collective practice, yeah? And I think that you also need to understand that the, the actors, and that's the reason why I moved from economics to sociology, because economics focus on the individual actor, sociology is more likely to see sort of collective behavior. So actors belong to groups and experience life in group structure conditions. So many of our explanations, for example, for the status of people of color end up doing what William Ryan called eons ago, blaming the victims. And by doing so, they ignore the system, yeah? For example, they claim that black, blacks don't do well in life because of their culture. So Oscar Lewis wrote one of his first books 
en Puerto Rico, en Puerto Rica, así es, la vida, claiming that the reason why full Puerto Ricans didn't do well, actually, why Puerto Ricans didn't do well, he didn't divide us, the population, yeah, was because we have the culture of poverty. And that, that argument of the culture of poverty is like Freddy Krueger. You think you have killed the culture of poverty, and it comes back with a new attire, yeah? Or they claim you're not doing well because of female-headed households, or it's class, or as Dana was talking about, <laughs> it is they have salt thought in their bodies, and a lot of people were using that lithograph as evidence, yeah? Because presumably shows a, a, a slave master, yes, tasting a black person to see if they are salty. Alternatively, and we don't know what this person had in mind, but we can think the person was a pervert, yeah? And there's a lot of work showing that slavery included the abuse, sexual and otherwise, of uh, both women and men. So it is anything but racism. I think it's time for us to take racism seriously, analytically, politically, and morally, as many folks are doing right now, in the mean streets to cite uh, Piri Thomas of America. So that, that's, that's it for me. Um, thanks. Thank you. Sorry, Suresh, it's, go, it's go, in your go, hands. Go ahead, <laughs> no, no, thank you all. I, I was just gonna say, Suresh, it's in your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so thanks, thanks, uh, thanks to all of our panelists. That was, that was really interesting. So now we'd like to like take questions from, uh, uh, from everyone. So if you wanna raise your hand, and I will do my best to keep up. We don't have the questions function here, so I, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a bit of a uh, uh, so I'm, I'm clear I won't I won't I won't see everyone. But if you want to use the raise hand function in the uh, 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 in the chat, and I can take I can take questions and call on you, Peter. Yeah, I just want to say thank you all so much for these really excellent presentations. And Mario, my students and I read your paper, and I think that we as economists certainly have to broaden our perspective. Um, my own view is that we tend to rely a lot on models. And so the call to action really is to think about new models of discrimination as a way of trying to instantiate some of these ideas into the profession. And then the second piece too, is whenever we write models, they need to be historically accurate, right? Like for some reason, it's like we write models with really terrible assumptions that have no basis in history. For example, that discrimination happens on the margin when in fact you had signs saying no blacks, regardless of your socioeconomic status. So thank you all for organizing this panel. Thank you for your work. I look forward to continuing to read and to engage with your work. And I certainly hope that um, the ideas here really permeate our profession in a foundational way. Great. Does anyone want to respond? Um, or I'll, I can keep taking questions. Um, Felix? Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you, everybody who's participating for, you know, your thoughtful words and for organizing. I guess I wanted to ask a little bit, I'm a PhD student who does research on race um, and my training is in economics, uh, my degree is in public policy. I have, you know, as I think some people have mentioned, I've faced pushback, right? I think when you think about, think about who is in economics, I've had the experience of people being in that room who think differently about these things and don't sort of take the standard economic view as given and are looking in these other disciplines thinking about those things. Those things are not received well, right? Which is I think why you don't see them published um, or sort of like being sort of the output that you see of the field and some things that are on their face ridiculous end up being received um, better because of sort of power. I guess I, my question is number one, is economics just weird partic or particularly say um, white in its power structures or some other thing that makes us very susceptible to things or these kinds of things in ways that you guys might not be um, in the disciplines that you sit in or do you guys have strategies that have allowed you to do this kind of uh, courageous work that challenges power in important ways and still sort of um, make it out on the other side. I am currently going through situations where projects are being, you know, facing a lot of pushback and are, I think, trying to be killed, um, not because of any sort of deeper reason besides the fact that people don't want to hear these kinds of conversations. So I'm just trying, you know, from one researcher to another, how do you make it through this? Uh, thank you guys for all of your work. I, can I respond? I, I really appreciate the, the question. It's something that, um, we struggle with in the historical profession as well. Um, I've seen it even as scholars that are writing about gender and women and slavery. Um, many of the original historians, some of the first generation of historians, particularly black women historians, were told that no one cares about the experience of enslaved women, although 
Caribbean scholars have been writing about it for decades, you know, at least 10 or 15 years before um, US historians started writing about gender and slavery. So one of the, the ways to, to push back against that, because we see this, there's a politics I've heard today of citations. I've heard that with all the speakers. There's also, um, you know, who controls the editorial boards who are seeing work as being acceptable, right? And I think the more um, we, we continue to push and publish and present at conferences, if, we could, if we're allowed in those spaces, the more we stand up and, and say this work and show how important it is, the more will be received. And I think um, the Black women's history is a really, in particular, a really growing field of scholarship, but that's by the work mostly of Black women, but not all, of really pushing against scholars who said that this work didn't matter. So I would just encourage you to continue to, to, continue to publish, find spaces that will accept your work and keep, you know, stay, stay in the game, don't give up. Can I add something? I think that we need, we need to understand the structure of the academy. Yeah? We work in HWCUs, most of us, historically white colleges and universities. And we have to be honest about the fact that until the other day, these places were all white. Yeah? They opened the doors for a few of us, and that's it. And they have been trying to slowly push <laughs> that door back and close it and keep you know, a select few in the house. And I think that although I do, and I have graduate students, and I have to give them individual level arguments about how to survive, how to maneuver, how to publish, how to do everything in a white-oriented uh, uh, discipline, I am a, a person who believes in collective action. Yeah? If the problems are systemic, we need systemic solutions. That means that we, the people, need to do a second round of rebellions. Yeah, uh, and, and I think that the, the academy has been a little bit slow in responding to the streets. Yeah, So we are here, literally, because people put their bodies out there in the 1960s. And I think that people are putting their bodies again out there. And it is incumbent upon us to force the changes that people are pushing in the streets into the academy. Do not allow this moment to pass without us forcing change, structural change, systemic change. Don't allow them to tell you, oh, we're willing to hire one more person of color. Because the game of hiring one and losing two losing two and getting one, you never win with that, yeah? So we need systemic big time change at this historical juncture. I'd like to interject something, uh, which is, um, I think that one of the critical issues for folks who are uh, inclined to think outside of uh, a very narrow box in terms of economics and outside of the traditional ideological boundaries is that you have to be very careful about determining which PhD program you go to. Uh, and you have to do an analysis of the types of interest, work, orientation, degree of open-mindedness of the faculty in a specific department. And so don't simply be drawn to the highest cachet department that accepts you, but also look for a department in which there will really be an opportunity for you to pursue the kind of work that's of interest to you. I love to oh, just a small point to add to these points. I think the, I think the question is extremely important. There's a I agree with what's been said before. I think they're all excellent points. I would add one more, which is when you're thinking about sort of uh, the problems you're working on and the kinds of papers you're writing. Um, there's an extent to which you may want to say, you know, I want to bring a different perspective to this question that hasn't been brought before. Um, and some of the pushback that you'll feel will probably come from people who are just not used to that perspective or have sort of not, won't even know how to evaluate it. A different take on that is to say, look, here are eight things we've always done. My perspective can show you what's wrong with two or three of them. In other words, to identify the holes in the existing paradigms of which there are many and intervene that way. I think, especially if you're starting out, if you don't have a lot of influence, if you do want to have an influence on the mainstream, I think beginning with the clear problems that, and we've heard several of them today, the clear problems that existing perspectives have on a problem you think is important is a wedge that fair-minded people who are perhaps less open would still find palatable. I might give you, a, I might give you an in. Martha, Hardy. Hi, Suresh. Um, Suresh, uh, there's a Aaron Coleman who's posted in chat. He has a question and had a question before I did, but doesn't know how to raise his hand. So why don't you take Aaron first and then come back to me? Got it. So Aaron, Aaron says, 
asks, uh, what do scholars of racial capitalism have to con contribute to the field of economics? Does Ced Cedric Robinson's theory of racial capitalism influence the work of stratification economics? How do I ask a question? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, on on racial capitalism and and uh, uh, and its relationship to stratification economics, I almost think Eduardo and Sandy should tee off on this. There, um, I, I'm not going to tee off too hard because I'm not really sure what people typically mean by racial capitalism, and I'd have to hear a definition of that before I proceeded to try to link it to stratification economics. But I am going to post the link to. Uh, to a couple of discussions of, of stratification economics that I've contributed to, one short, one long, and, uh, and I hope that's helpful to people. Yeah, for me, the, the issue is this uh, idea of the pure capitalist system that many of us, when we're in taking uh, Economics 101, we're sort of forced to believe that capitalism is this system of rational actors. And it's understanding that uh, what happened 500 years ago, yeah, the genocide, slavery, etc., left an imprint in the system, and that actually the capitalist order could not have uh, developed and could not continue without racism. Yeah, so th that's what I mean by by heralding the importance of the discussion on racialized capitalism. And Sandy, as you probably know, there is a burgeoning uh, discussion out there of uh, uh, returning to the Cedric Robinson arguments and trying to tease out a better definition, et cetera. We may, we may not be still there, but I, th I think that the instinct of connecting uh, race and capitalism as twin uh, components of a social order are important because the alternative in economics, and I say in sociology too, is assuming that capitalism is this pure system of rational actors particularly that the notion of the bourgeoisie as the super rational actors who might use racism as an ideology, put the violin music, an ideology used by the bourgeoisie to divide workers, assuming that capitalists are not racialized actors, which makes no sense to me. Yeah, except, you know, I think one of the things that has always disturbed me about this notion of racial capitalism is I, I'm not sure that there's been any other type of capitalism at the beginning. Uh, because of the centrality of this, the transatlantic slave trade and slavery to capitalist economic development at its, at its beginnings. Uh, but I also don't think that racialism or racism is confined to capitalism either. And so, uh, so I, I, I've, I've never been fully certain of the utility of the concept of racial capitalism. But, you know, that's, uh, that's the, you know, I'm, I'm idiosyncratic on many counts. Mar uh, Marty? Um, thank you, Suresh. And Suresh, thank you to you and Gabe and others for putting this together. This has been great. Thank you. Um, I, I want to, uh, I was formulating my question when Sandy made his comment about find yourself a department where you can thrive. Um, and because I, I find myself often in talking with graduate students, such as Suresh when he was a graduate student, um, trying to, to find this help people find a path where they can make a difference. And remembering, one of my vivid memories from undergraduate days was, was a, a professor who um, sort of hid who he truly was because he figured once he got tenure, then he could reveal who he truly, truly was. And then of course he didn't get tenure and he had a nervous breakdown. And, and so trying to help graduate students, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking for advice here, helping to find gra help graduate students find their way to make a difference in the world, um, but at the same time, knowing that if they go into the academic world, in order to have a difference for, for a lifetime, they have to get tenure somewhere. And that the tenuring, that as much as we may want to affect change, we can't smack all of our colleagues upside the head um, as fast as we might like to, and have that impact on the tenuring system. So um, what do we say? And I don't want them all to say, you know, I really should just study sociology because I want economics to, to change in a way so that it can make a difference in a way that it should. Okay, that's sort of the yeah. dilemma. Sandy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 I agree, and I, it's a struggle I always have with students who think that they should go to other fields because, uh, 
uh, economics is, uh, is so laden with resistance to the kind of work they want to do. But I, I hope that they will join in, in anticipation of at some point really turning the corner in what happens in the economics profession. Yeah. I also think it starts in undergrad. Like it's not even at the PhD level. It's just like tons of people, uh, tons of students, my undergrads that like take intro econ and they think this doesn't speak to me at all and switch out into sociology. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I worry about the principal's classes that still are teaching the homo economic um, rational man operating in efficient markets. And it's like, dude. <laughs> One quick point. Sociology is not salvation either. So they may switch to sociology and then keep switching around and, you know, they may end up in anthropology and then after anthropology, God knows where. <laughs> if I can come in here, I just want to um, maybe prod uh, Mario a little bit more because I thought that what he said uh, provided a kind of um, um, a, a bit of a... Um, um, a hopeful strategy that I mean I think for graduate students you know I, I think you don't have to solve uh, everything and upend the field um, from from your doctoral uh, studies on I think you, you, you what you want to do um, is be true to your own values uh, pursue the research agenda and the interests that you have uh, but you have chosen a discipline uh, and it's very difficult for as a graduate student to um, uh, to uh, do something that's going to be perceived as undermining the foundational um, uh, methods and norms of the discipline. Um, and, and I think um, what I heard Mario as saying is that, well, there is a strategy or you can, you can find anomalies or you can find um, uh, new results uh, that seem inconsistent uh, with uh, the maintained uh, working hypotheses of the discipline and start making inroads uh, in that way. And I, I think economists like surprises, economists like paradoxes. Um, I think you know, that's, that there is, there is some path there um, that uh, I want to encourage all the graduate students who are actually listening to this, yeah. uh, that, that there might be ways. But it, it was more, mostly uh, to call uh, Mario in uh, to, to expand perhaps. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was going to actually say a couple of things. The first consistent with that point. I mean, the the useful thing is that a lot of the traditional uh, models in economics about many of the things we're discussing are, in fact, uh, either wrong or insufficient. In other words, there's a lot of space in which to actually make a contribution. Um, the second thing I would say is that it's actually a follow-up to a point I think Sandy made at the beginning, you know, you hinted about the fact that economists, I think you said, tend to colonize other disciplines or something like that, um, or subject matters. I think that's true for many areas, but I actually think that's an opening. So, uh, for example, uh, in the economics of education, um, uh, there, there's a lot of economists, I should say, who write in, in the space of education. But at this point, it's, it's actually quite hard to get away with being an, an economist writing in education and ignore all of the work by psychologists who work in the field, sociologists who work in the field, and so on. Um, one of the areas I started out with in the study of urban poverty and inequality, economists have started in that area as well. Uh, Raj and others have, have uh, Nathaniel Hendren and others have done a lot of papers recently on, on neighborhood effects and the, royal, the role of neighborhood poverty in your life chances, which is a traditional sociological field. And... Uh, and I've noticed a way more openness. I've, talking to, I've talked to that team quite a bit and probably more than a similar team would have talked to economists 20 years ago. And to me, that seems like another sort of wedge point where a different kind of perspective can come into mainstream thinking. So I think Danny's right. The first thing to do is sort of figure out what, you're, what you want to do with yourself. What's, what, are, what are your actual values, what you actually care about? And if you end up caring about, I'm just going to use the phrase mainstream economics. And, and I know that, probably means something different to all of you. But if you care about sort of making an inroads and in that, there are a couple of spaces, both topic areas, and again, finding issues that the field hasn't addressed that well, where you can make an inroads and, and establish the kind of influence that Martha was talking about um, and get tenure. So we, we advertised to 5.30, and I wish, I wish we had more uh, time to, uh, to continue this conversation. We're trying to, we were thinking about 
whether we should have another one, and it seems like seems like we should. Um, uh, and so we'll 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 try to try to organize that um, try to organize that as well. So I just want to thank um, our speakers, our panelists, and Sandy for moderating. Thanks, thanks everyone, um, and uh, look forward to con continuing this this conversation on the internet. I guess. <laughs> um, uh, see you, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.